I slip into my insolence, sleek as an eel. Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Cindy Juyong Oak, feeling hopeful about connecting a bit of poetry and poetics to you today. This week, I have the true treat of speaking with Omar Saker, who joins us from Sydney, Australia. Omar tends to the in-between, writing prose and poetry, moving between poetic and political urges. A cultural practitioner of queer and diasporic experiences, he writes very generous poems. They grieve loudly, they celebrate kindly, and we'll get to spend time with the sequence featured in the June issue of Poetry. The poems come from Omar's newest collection, Non-Essential Work, just out from University of Queensland Press in April 2023. Omar, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. We're going to be talking about work from your third collection, Non-Essential Work. So I wanted to start with some essential questions. How are you sleeping and eating lately? (laughs) I am, you know, I'm doing okay. Relatively speaking, the relative referring to having an 11-month-old child and the difficulties and joys that brings into your life. The thing is, he's doing great. Great. (laughs) We're not, but as long as he's doing great, it's fine. (laughs) Are you feeling like you might do anything for the 12th month? Yeah, we are going to do a birthday. I always thought that that was like a weird nonsense thing people did, you know, <laughs> uh, like why? They're one, they're, <laughs> they're a baby, they don't know anything. Like, yeah. how do you have so much money kind of right. questions were run through my mind. <laughs> and then like, um, yeah. now we're here and it's like, oh. Yeah, we should. Like, <laughs> why not? He's a baby. We love him. Things like, shift. Also, people should come and give us food and things. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> any excuse <laughs> to have people come and, like, nod sympathetically at us and say soothing things. <laughs> yes. Gather the people. <laughs> um, yeah. Koreans actually do a big 100-day party and a oh. big year party because, because people used to die, you know, like kids used to die. Yeah. And so people will literally fly to the, for a one-year party and not to a wedding or something. It's so hilarious. Wow. But there's a great thing that they do where you spread out different objects, just giving you party ideas, and the baby kind of reaches. And whatever they reach for, it represents what they'll have, like what will be prosperous. Oh. So uh, if you reach for string, that is a long life. Or if you reach for money, that is you know wealthy life, things like that. Wow, that's so cool. Definitely going to culturally appropriate that um, tradition. Yes, please. <laughs> and get yeah. cancelled by Lay it all someone. out. <laughs> and have the baby crawl to whatever uh, is there. But that tradition makes like so much more sense, actually, you know, in the context that you just explained, like, as opposed to weddings. Yeah. You know, why go to all that effort? <laughs> I know. Really? Yeah. All, all the days, super long. It's two adults, like, you guys are fine. You know what I mean? You're like, fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Well, speaking of celebrations, <laughs> um, your three poems, I think, and this book is such a cause for celebration, this newer book. Um, and I wanted to ask about the sequence, which addresses Canto 28 of Dante's Inferno, which, of course, describes torture. And is part of this well-known canon and lineage and also addresses 
you know, the, the prophet. So how do you sort of position yourself amid and between these, this literary description mm. of violence and then these sort of affirmations of faith and mentions? It was a strange one coming to it, having known something of it. I mean, this is actually somewhat similar, I think, to the process of coming to religion uh, as an adult, as something that you have heard about for most of your life or seen referenced, kind of reproduced in some manner. And then you get older and you actually read the text. You actually read the Bible or the Quran and you're like, wait a minute. This is very different. <laughs> there is right. so much here you do not talk about yes. that you have left out of the conversation. Um, and so that was kind of what occurred when I read The Inferno and um, came to that scene. And yeah, it's literary and it's all the rest of it. I wasn't really focused so much on that mm -hmm. as much as I was the depiction of the prophet Sallallahu uh, Alaihi Wasallam, and then his positioning in the text as well, being like so close to the devil. Like th mm. this is how reviled hmm. he was in that time. And then how much is he reviled today that that scene is not mentioned, is not worthy of mention. Right. And so... I wanted to write about it. And then there's all this connectivity, I guess, between how I'm seen by my family and culture as a sinner, as mm. someone whom I'm sure many believe will go to hell. Right. And it's just so weird and interesting to encounter the prophet in this depiction of hell as well. Yeah, you've often discussed the paradoxes and estrangements of being bi and Muslim and, and an Arab poet and the kind of difficulties that that can bring with inclusion or alienation in different ways or from different people. I wonder if writing and being a reader of literatures, including Western literatures, is a part of that too. Are there paradoxes that come up for you that feel at odds with experiences or identities outside of these histories like of Dante's Inferno? The first thing that comes to my mind straight away is the way in which writing and poetry is seen as elite and is discussed as prestigious, as evidence of humanity's like greatness. Right. And then paradoxically, the contempt we display for the people who make it for poets, the lack of support that the arts gets generally. Mm. That paradox is obviously something that I explore in this book and something that I rub up against a lot in my life because I grew up in a poor family and I am working class and it's a lot of authors at these festivals that I go to are not. Mm -hmm. So that thing of class and notions of prestige, which I find to be utterly hollow and almost always just code for money. I, you know, I struggle with a lot in a way that um, I, I feel others do not within this field. Mm. And one of the other aspects as well is 
the idea of poetry having a utility or not. That sense of futility is something that I wrestle with a great deal, and I'm often quite evangelical about poetry. I think a lot of poets are, you know, will say things like, it saved our lives, and that will be true. But then at the same time, we can write, and we do write great poetry about various struggles and continue a tradition of great poetry about great struggles without seeing change. It's hard. It's hard when you're working in this space and you're desiring so much Mm -hmm. that kind of impact to not see it immediately. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I think about a lot. What you said about use and utility reminds me of the academic and writer Sada Ahmed has a book called What's the Use on the Uses of Use. And it's all about that idea of use of utility is is this colonial part of, of structural persecution. And she proposes this idea of queer use. <laughs> and I know how much birds show up in your writing. So I think you'll really appreciate this because the cover of the book is actually an image of a red post box. And it has a note on the outside. It says, birds nesting, please do not use this box. Many thanks. <laughs> and I mean, it's so sweet because, you know, it's about this idea of things being used in a new way. Mm. It's a recent book and she has a newer project about complaint. Yes, I've read some of Oh, that. you have. Great. Yeah. No, and I, I know of her work, um, but yes. I, I have not read the book on use and now I need to very much. Yeah. She, she spoke with someone for the complaint book about getting her needs met in an institution after returning, I think, from long-term sick leave, who said it feels like a little bird scratching and not having an effect. I think we have her response. We can play for you, actually. So when I heard the little birds in her story, my queer ears pricked up. In my book on the uses of use, what's the use? I use this image as an image of queer use, how things can be used in ways that were not intended or by those for whom they were not intended. So the birds turn a postbox into a nest. I can see that this is a rather happy and hopeful image, perhaps not a typical image for a killjoy to show. Usually, when we turn up in the institutions not built for us, we are told, get back in your own box, go back, or go home. Mm. I love that idea. Yeah. Or at least, you know, just allowing for the fact that even what we do can have a different function than what we imagined, can provoke things we did not imagine. And it doesn't necessarily need to be as political as you hoped. Mm -hmm. It could be quite personal. Um, or vice versa. Even thinking about the many festivals that you do, the many events that you do, those being set up for a certain purpose, but then there being room to subvert the original purposes and to create Mm. new versions of community building as new people come in, or even with the English language, the way that it can be this post box that's used for something it wasn't meant for by people who weren't meant to use it in that way. Yeah. Uh, I think that your poetry is doing a lot of that is switching, questioning, moving. I had this moment yesterday. I was performing for New South Wales Treasury. My state government had invited me to do an event for them for uh, Ida Hobbit, 
International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia. Mm -hmm. And it was fucking weird. Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Australian, so swearing happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, it was profoundly weird and the like being in that building and being in that space was alienating. But the people who had organized it were queer women of color. Mm. One of them was a queer Muslim as well. Uh, but a lot of what we talked about was how this space was not intended for us and not intended for these kinds of conversations. And in fact, this kind of conversation had not occurred there before. Mm-hmm. There was also a little bit of like, you're, you're going to say the things that we can't say now in this space because we work here mm, and we're, right. we're employees <laughs> and we've like ushered you in for this reason. And I was like, cool, 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 cool. Thanks for telling me that as I'm about to speak in the microphone. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. But what I'm struggling with, I think, is really just cynicism. My own sense of are we kidding ourselves by saying we're being subversive within the structure. So I don't have a, a neat way to end this thought. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not a neat thought. There's hostility and there's hope. And there's, I think, the important question of what is the individual responsibility or complicity. And, and I tend to feel I find it easier to just err on the side of it's fucked and I'm a part of it. Even when I was a public school teacher, I would think about the person signing my checks and, mm. you know, what, what I was really doing to these students in, you know, this architecture of like almost like a prison and teaching creative writing at the university level. Sometimes I feel like this is a Ponzi scheme. You yeah. know, these students all now they want to get MFAs. Like, where, where are we? How's everyone going to? Yeah. Yeah. So I tend to kind of feel like I'm in it now. I'm it's yeah. not good. <laughs> yeah. How much is how much of it is a product of self-loathing? How much of it is a kind of reckless giving in to this cynicism, which we've attached a value to, I feel, in public discourse mm. because it signifies that you're aware. Right. Yeah, there's a feeling that if you're sincere, you must be missing something. Uh, you must not understand some aspect of what's happening. Yeah. I think that's very true. I think a lot about um, Tony Soprano. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've been thinking about Soprano a lot. Yeah. Um, in, in recent months because the end of that storyline is one in which you become aware. There's that scene of um, his therapist with other therapists talking about new research that shows uh, being self-aware is one of the tricks that uh, sociopaths and master criminals um, use wow. to differentiate themselves from everyone else doing the crimes and um i see that a lot maybe in in kind of how we talk about mm -hmm. the evils of the day as if the talking is enough right and the awareness is enough because that means we're not like the others unthinkingly doing mm. whereas in my mind it makes you more fucked 
Right. It's <laughs> inverse. It's actually, you're aware and continuing. <laughs> <laughs> okay so. yeah it, it's so true though that people confuse acknowledgement with action yes again not not something i have a neat hopeful pivot from just gonna drop that in here and you know make a queer use of it <laughs> yeah let's make a queer use of of a sincere interaction One of the things that helps me is stepping back from the previous grandiose ideas I had about um, what I was doing and what poetry could do. And stop looking at it as though I'm going to create structural changes <laughs> with a poem and really start looking at it as making personal changes possible. I'm in the work of changing someone's world, not the world. And that's something that becomes really obvious in moments like my event yesterday, where there were a couple of people whose hearts were just on fire with light and love that I was there and able to speak to the things that they wanted so much to talk about and to hear and who loved my work and who found it so meaningful. And in the midst of like largely indifference and a huge concentration of power that we were all aware of and could do little about. So I try to focus on those little moments. One thing I think I find difficult to read about and write about is falling in love. I think it's just difficult for people to write about its frailty and, and rarity and, and specialness in a way that is interesting or feels original to them. And the world sort of opens up through that feeling. It's an important feeling, but it also is like more narrowing and it's more specific and you're concentrating on a single person. But your work often makes that available mm. and has love energizing and changing thought and even sort of personhood. Has it, and does it continue to affect your process, the way that you think about the finished poems? Mm. Thank you for that. Yeah, love is just the most extraordinary force in the world. It's funny because prior to meeting my wife, I didn't believe in love and I thought it was romantic nonsense. And then obviously she changed that. And now I live in it. And it is just a new way of moving through the world such that I don't worry about saying things like uh, love is the most powerful force in the world, which previously I might have cringed at or felt some kind of way because masculinity is just a dismal, shitty fucking framework for seeing the world and all the rest of it. So, and now I'm in love and of course it just changes how you see yourself. It changes how you see everything and... I don't know that it's necessarily changing how I see finished poems or 
affecting the the level of the line, at least um, not yet. I do still see my work as a separate sphere where I can enact things that I certainly and create things that I certainly wouldn't in the context of our relationship. And, and what I mean by that is I explore thoughts and feelings in my work that are not thoughts and feelings that I hold in my life. Mm-hmm. I think it, you know, it, it would be so limiting if I only explored the thoughts and feelings that I hold. And I'm making a distinction between what I hold and what just passes through me. This is something I had to think about and then discuss um, with my wife so that if there are darker thoughts and feelings that are, you know, a a flickering thought that came and went, it's important to be able to say this is not real and this is real. Distinguishing for yourself what's real and lasting or flickering and passing, is that something you know immediately or is it once you can see the poem outside yourself? It's a great question. I think I'm aware in the moment. Yeah, I'm aware in the moment that this is not something that I hold. I'm actually aware straight away when I have the thought. Mm. And I'll be like, that's A, that's not me. And B, I'm going to write about that. <laughs> so, right. Uh, because I, I, I'm drawn to a certain ugliness, which is called certainty. Uh, because I'm in, so anxious, I have an anxiety disorder mm. and ADHD and everything in my life is uh, uncertain or uh, fluid in some manner. And mm. on, a, on a ridiculous level, like I'm half Turkish, half Lebanese, you know what I mean? I'm bisexual, so I'm straight desires quote-unquote, and queer desires, quote-unquote. And I write in multiple forms and Mm -hmm. so many different communities see me or reject me on the basis of these things. And I have been subject to the negative authority of language all my life, and that Mm -hmm. is coming out of the public spheres, the political spheres, trying to pin words to my bodies, trying to pin meanings to my body and to my community. And so I love declarative sentences. I love the absurdity of a line that has the audacity to say, this is what a thing is. You know, it registers to me as insane. And I love it. I love it because I can use it in so many different ways to paper over uncertainties. Yeah, I, I do find it I do find it ugly, but I also find it extraordinary. There's something addictive to it, there's something that I can't quite explain, but that's why I write poetry. <laughs> most recent book has nine poems that are titled in the same way, a sequence that repeats throughout the book in different intervals, and each poem seems to reflect on Canto 28 of Dante's Inferno, where we have this eighth level of hell, and the prophet is depicted being tortured, and in doing so, depicts a kind of aggression against Islam. 
I think it would be great to hear one of these poems. Would you mind reading maybe the one that starts, I slip into my insolence? Yeah. On finding the Prophet Muhammad in Dante's Inferno, I slip into my insolence, sleek as an eel. I have walked so many ways around God, I can tell you holiness is a roundabout with a thousand exit points labeled doubt, like the boy who unzipped my pants in my sleep, who broke the zipper of my sleep, so I have lost the measure of rest since. Like my father leaving before I knew him or could speak, my body forever unkneeling to pray, Unless there's a zipper in front of me, a boy in front of me, a ghost, a beckoning, a gate, where, perhaps, if I open wide enough, I will be able to wake again and still, soaked as I am in shame still, I care about my prophet's name. read that poem with such a gentleness, but also such a depth. And the metaphor of the zipper of sleep and, and the rest that is lost to the memory of fear that repeats feels very curious to hear out loud, almost inviting in its openness. One thing that comes up for me is just, how, you know, sometimes queer writers find it more difficult to talk about queer violence. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what it was like to bring this poem into its making from that perspective. Mm. Well, it's always easier for me to write about it than to speak about it. Mm. Uh, So that's one of the things that comes up a lot when people ask me questions about the vulnerability I'm experiencing or letting them into when I read poems. And part of me wants to say, well, I wrote the poem so we didn't speak about it personally like you and I right now because yeah. I, I could I could break uh, in this moment in a way where I, I don't necessarily know if you'll be able to catch or hold me. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the trickiness. I have, of course, been doing this for some years now, so... I am able to to talk about it. And the reason I do so is simply because silence is far harder to bear than talking about it. And silence will kill you mm. in a way that talking about it will not. Mm. And sometimes when you're in the moment rather gripped by a trauma, you can be convinced that to speak about it will be the end of you. And that's because illnesses like this, mental illnesses, I talk about them a little bit as if they have a will of their own. They can. Which is that they don't want you to heal. Mm. When you're in that moment, when you're in the grip of it, a part of you does not want you to heal, is afraid very much of what it means to articulate something and then be seen as something because of it. So what I have learned is that the people who don't talk about these things are the ones who do not survive. 
are the ones who are unable to break the cycle of damage and are enacting harm still on themselves and their loved ones. So that's why I talk about it and that's why I write about it. I once went to a talk with Alquas, this Palestinian organization that focuses on decolonizing queering Mm. and trying to see sexuality as not extricable from everything else. The talk I heard had a big focus on conversation between members of a community, meeting people where they are without judgment. I found it really moving and true. And Mm. I think that's maybe what you're bringing up is that the power of, of just holding space for a certain type of talk and maybe your books are part of such an understanding for you and for others. Yeah, I definitely want to create a space in literature in which my past selves would feel safe in or seen in or able to speak in. And a lot of the time what I'm hearing from readers is I didn't know I had permission to talk about this. I didn't know that other people were feeling this Mm. or going through this. It reminds me what you were talking about, about having an anxiety disorder, because I also have diagnoses and I know that there are a lot of problems with diagnoses and there are so many Mm. issues historically with these books and who creates them. But I remember feeling so relieved to learn that there was a name for something that I had and that I was matching it perfectly. Like to find out that I was sort of like almost a textbook case of something made me feel like, well, I'm not making it up then, right? Like there's this sense that the language gives it some kind of, I don't know, history. Yeah, I think for me, um, I understand exactly um, what you're saying. And uh, it's something that's um, been on my mind again recently. Last year I was diagnosed with autism and that sense of I've always suspected I am X, Y, Z, right? That these particular behaviours might mean something other than this is just how I am. Like maybe other people are like this too. Maybe this is something I can work on, work with. The feeling that comes from a diagnosis is validation. But more importantly, diagnosis is invested with that authority. What I mentioned earlier, the negative authority of language, something that is loaded with a power that comes from a social acceptance of it. This is to say that people respond very differently when you tell them, I have a diagnosis of this. Mm-hmm. They accept it because it comes with an authority. Yeah, and, and I don't know if it's... um. A, product of my own if it's just me but like when I do go through the process of getting diagnosed or therapeutic processes where I'm reading about all of the kind of symptoms or traits that people exhibit I then look around myself at the people and I'm like I see it in you Mm. you know what I mean I see it in you and I see it in you and I see it in you and I just, uh, again, like, I don't know if it's because I'm, I'm maybe subconsciously looking for it or projecting it, but my, my general feeling is that it's a lot more common oh, yes. than 
people assume. These questions about the language and the connection with others and, and the recognition of the self and others connects well to a question we have for you that is for a new segment called Question Into the Void, where poets who are interviewed offer up a question and they don't know who the question's going to because we haven't booked the guests yet. Mm. But the next poet gets to kind of hear it and respond to it. And we have one for you if you'd like to hear it. Yeah, of course. Hello, my name is Tishani Doshi, and this is my question into the void, which has to do with innerness and outerness, something I think a lot about in my own work. But I'm wondering, as a poet, whether that is something important to you and how this reckoning maybe has changed over your poetic career. And also, if you are not in a phase of writing poems or you're struggling to write poems, are there processes or are there modes by which you can fine-tune as if a, as if like an instrument or find your way back to to make this reckoning between one's innerness and the outer world? First of all, yay, Tishani, I love her. <laughs> and, and, and have met her and she's wonderful. Um, so that's really nice uh, that I get this question from someone I know. Innerness and outerness uh, is important, but it's not something that I keep distinct. I am most interested in where my body meets the world, where my spirit meets my body, and the ways in which we travel between these spaces. So the, the impacts, I guess, at those thresholds. I have been drawn from the beginning and I'm still drawn very much to witnessing to what is happening around me. So one of the things that has been true throughout my life is that I disassociate frequently. I am not present in my body often. And as a result of traumas, as a result of autism or ADHD, and I don't know exactly, I can't pinpoint the origin of them. But suffice to say that I am told often how oblivious I am. And there are holes in my days and there are holes in my life. And writing for me is a way of reclaiming that space and anchoring myself to the world. And what I have found is that the I, myself, is somewhat immaterial. That even though I don't remember a great deal, my body remembers. And when I'm writing, I can access that. You know, speaking of innerness and outerness, let's hear a poem where you're having a domestic scene and we're getting a sense of the ins and the outs, including this door, which I think is that kind of hinge between in and out for a lot of us. Yeah. This is called 
Well, you know what it's called. <laughs> it's on finding the Prophet Muhammad in Dante's Inferno. A lover undresses with permission. Picture the body becoming real. I picture becoming real intimate. It is strange to think of legs as closed. I open my legs with strangers. I widen, stretch. What belongs here? Don't say a door. Instead of belonging, I eat the door. Make an animal flap for the four-legged. I'm on all fours, ass slapped, an animal flap. Violence begets. Love circumvents. I swallow my would-be begottens. Love this violence. To all doormen, I say ahlam wa sahlam. Man, this door shudders familiarly, easy. I undress permission with splintered hands. There's so many moments where we have something questioned. The hands are splintered. The doorman becomes man, becomes an exclamation, where these hinges of the duplex form create this lilting, almost play. Um, and you also use sistinas and sonnets and, and, and writing right to left, like Arabi. And I'm curious how poetic forms provide containers for your writing and also maybe what they limit. Yeah, it's actually not something that I'm, I typically do. It's uh, something new to this book. And I think that's a product of grief which is that it drove me a little bit mad. And I kept writing version after version after version of a poem, which is unusual for me. I don't typically do that. I would edit a poem, but rarely reshape, relineate to the degree that I was doing. I was like really rewriting them and rewriting them over and over and over again. And so I started using forms because the constraints were really helpful. And I love the duplex form, mm -hmm. particularly. I adore Jericho Brown, uh, he's genius. And the duplex allows you to play with that certainty of a line, to subvert that certainty immediately. And that slipperiness just contains extraordinary potential. Mm -hmm. And I find it so generative, particularly for subjects or moments that are already haunting. Right. So the duplex form takes the last line of the, each couplet and repeats it in the first line of the next stanza, but you've created a, way, a version of it where the words can become a different part of speech. They can be split up and brought back together. And that repetition is not exact. And it offers this sense of recognition that is questioned and that's added to. Um, yeah. And I think sometimes grief does need a container. That yes. the fact that almost everybody has these rituals of how long, how many days are you wearing this or going here and waiting for the bath and all these things actually help the people who are grieving because there's a system and there's a way that it's done. 
Um, I wanted to say I'm so sorry about the death of your grandmother um, and, and who to whom you had such a special relationship, it seemed, before she passed this year. And, and I feel connected to your mourning as well because my, my grandmother, my mother's mother, died this year as well of COVID. Oh, I'm sorry. And yeah, I'm so curious about the relationship you had, the kind of immediacy you had as grandmother and grandson and what that relationship was like. Mm, um, thank you. I'm moved to hear and to know that someone else that's connected to my morning, I think, is a, is a special thing. Um, I adored my grandmother. And I think partly the, the intensity of that love, which was reciprocated, comes from the fact that we were separated for most of our lives. So I met her for the first time as a teenager and then not again until I was in my 20s and able to have a relationship with her on, of my own free will. And then I would go to her unit uh, every Sunday and have breakfast with her. And there was this, yeah, 20 years of not being able to love, 20 years of love just built up mm. inside us. And I was there for her last breaths. I came into the room and I, I held her hand. And I said, it's okay. And she closed her eyes and was able to leave. I think that sense of comfort is really important. A lot of people think in grief anyway, that they're the ones going through it the most or struggling the hardest. And it's, it's like, no, I think the act of dying is the hardest thing. Mm -hmm. And I have a, I have a, you know, somewhat, maybe strange relationship to grief because I do feel like I live in it and I've lived in it for so long that I'm more comfortable within it than perhaps other people are. But then also I have such a strong sense that she's with me and I have such a strong sense that my father is with me and that my uncle is with me and that one of the more difficult things is knowing that other people won't be able to meet the people who have passed, mm. knowing that my son won't have conscious memories of her. But I have photographs and I have videos and I'll be able to show him and maybe help him connect to what is imprinted in his skin uh, and in his mind, which was knowing her. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing, and, and I'm grateful to get to know a bit of what she was like through your work and appreciate the relationship that you had and acknowledge it. Thank you so, so much, really, for the whole conversation, which was generous and perceptive, but also for uh, holding space for my mornings and uh, connecting them to your own. Yeah. You may hear my baby in the background of that, though, just so you know. <laughs> My wife's looking at me like, it's baby I, got time. A, I got a baby. She just got home. He's now marching toward me. So. Hi, sweetie. Oh. <laughs> I got to go. Yeah. Looking ready for the day. <laughs> when he shakes his head, that means he's excited. He's like, beautiful. Hey, do a po Poets with Kids <laughs> podcast? Is that a thing? All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
big thanks to Omar Saker and to his wife, Hannah Donnelly, for helping to make this podcast possible. Omar is an award-winning poet with three collections, including most recently Non-Essential Work out from University of Queensland Press in 2023, and a novel, Son of Sin, from Affirm Press last year. You can read three poems by Omar in the June 2023 issue of Poetry in print and online. This show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir, Alabaster de Plume, John McCowan, Rob Mazurik, and Irreversible Entanglements. Until next time, with gratitude for the griefs and for the parties, thanks for listening. 